Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field. And then together we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere. And so are we. I can't believe it, but this is our 52nd episode. We started this podcast one year ago now. So I wanted to take a moment to thank our listeners for joining us and being part of this amazing transformative power of design. This has been a lot of fun. We've had the chance to interview a myriad of experts in design fields, and we're excited to continue. So thanks for being on the journey with us and keep listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and you'll hear from us every Thursday. This week, we're talking about crafting spatial experiences with data and technology and how designers use architecture, light, sound, and vision to create captivating experiences that connect with an audience. Joining us today as guest co-host is David Schwarz, the founder of Hush, a concept-driven experience design agency. They're very cool. And our special guest is Nikolai Cornell, the creative director and senior design manager of brand experience at Uber. But before we dive in, some quick news from the Design Museum. I wanted to again remind everyone to check out our We Design exhibition conversation cards. These are incredibly well-designed cards that bring the We Design exhibition home to you. We Design is our exhibition that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries and includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. It can be used alone, you can use it with friends, pull it up over Zoom. They're a lot of fun and really interesting and you can use them in a lot of different ways. There's some really great prompts. So check them out. It's available to order now on our website, get your deck at designmuseumeverywhere.org. And with that, onto this week's topic, When you're immersed in an experience, it should captivate all your senses. The sound transports you, the visuals captivate, and the space should evoke a feeling. This is experiential design. It is how people interact with the space to gain understanding of an organization's brand or where they are. I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by David Schwarz. David is the founding partner of Hush, a design agency whose mission is to design experiences for the most dynamic organizations in the world. Before Hush, David earned his MFA in media design at Art Center College of Design. He moved to San Francisco during the dot-com boom and shifted his focus towards the designing and building of the early consumer web. Now his work includes brands like Facebook, Google, Instagram, just to name a few. David crafts designs that are beautiful human experiences. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a really nice introduction. David, I'd love to start with your personal journey. I read that you were interested in design for a long time before you even knew that an actual practice of design existed. And that's my same story. So when did you discover design as a career option? That's a great question. I mean, it, it might have been a, a scenario where it was there. I just didn't see it. You know, it was just invisible to me in a way. It probably wasn't until after college where... Um, you know, the the sort of windows of perception open and because your scale of just relationships and um, what you know things to be kind of grows. I mean, it, it wasn't just design, right? It was like all these other things that people I knew or older brothers or friends of friends were doing. And I was like, really, you, you do that? That's a thing? They pay you to do that? Right. They pay you to do it or maybe <laughs> not. Or yeah, you know, so I think design was part of that 
it was a capital D design in the idea that it's an entire industry and it's an entire academic pursuit and and a, a way of thinking and organizing ideas and and I it wasn't an epiphany. I mean, I'm exaggerating. I kind of knew this, right? I had always been involved in architecture and and studying art history and making things. And so the idea of art and craft and design was always part of me. But I think maybe architecture was the was the profession that I could see even as a young age. It's like, oh, I know some people who are architects and they build these buildings that I'm standing in. Okay, there's a path there. But this sort of like abstract more abstract design practice was was not in front of me as a as a kid. So this whole idea of experiential design, I always find it hard it's, to define, right? It's so ubiquitous as everything we do is, is an experience. So can you help our listeners? What is experiential design? What makes it successful? You know, just on our coasts of our own country, you know, the idea of experience design on the West Coast is often related to the digital rectangle, the UI and UX of the frame. I mean, there's job postings on LinkedIn for experience designers that are truly building product, digital product. And there are thousands of job postings on this coast who maybe come more from, I don't know, brand or, you know, and not technology. And uh, maybe more in the camp that we're in, right? So I think there's just met mixed up language and it, the word experience just holds so much that it can almost hold nothing. You know, the idea that we are no longer just human beings in a physical world, but that our day in and day out in our journeys to learn things, to explore things, to feel things now involve this whole suite of digital and physical components that the sum total of which becomes experience. So those components in the world have to match the components of our human beingness, meaning our senses. And so there needs to be a group of people, experience designers, who are able to look more objectively at how we experience things as human beings, as in our bodies, in our senses, and how we then design the world to match. And we have to approach it in saying, I don't know. Maybe sound is the most important sense to make more acute at this moment. Maybe information would help. Maybe just amazing beauty could could be where we want to place our effort. Um, physical beauty. I don't know. Everything's a nail to a hammer. So if you're an architect, you're going to architect it. And everything's about putting people in a box. If you're a digital product maker, everything should be answered within the product in your pocket. So it's much like a orchestra. Not everyone is playing all the time. Sometimes they are, and there's really big moments, but often there's maybe little single instrumentation sections that are actually really powerful. It strikes me because people might be like, again, experiences are so ubiquitous, but when you have a good experience, sometimes it actually was designed, right? All the different elements were put together in this kind of like orchestra. But also this idea that like, if it's a good experience, you don't even realize <laughs> that it's happening to you or that it's been designed. So I'm curious if you could share a time when you had an experience and you were like, I can tell this was designed, right? In a meaningful way. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. The best design becomes invisible, right? In a way. And it's almost like the information and ideas meet you some like deep within your brain in some strange, strange way. The best experiences that I've participated in are not anything in the commercial landscape or the, you know, in the industry per se. I mean, 
strangely, I get most of my inspiration from uh, the art world or the natural world. So in a way, like Mother Nature is the best designer we have, right? It's like somehow you're in spaces that are just, there's just the water flowed that way. The definition of immersive, right? <laughs> it's it's like, like we're here. So that's kind of a cop out political answer, but I, I truly do. Like I'm much more moved when the hand wasn't on the design steering wheel and it was just is the way it was made. But also I think um, the art world, especially like installation and experience art, I think there's a sort of dedication to form and perception in a way that, you know, doesn't have to serve a commercial purpose only. It's a little bit cliche to say, but I feel like it can be a one-liner and be really powerful and it doesn't have to also do a thousand other things. And the simple statements are really, really strong. Yeah, yeah, totally. Tell me more about Hush. Uh, what led you to found it? I, I want to know if there's any story behind the name because I, I love the name. Uh, I won't go back so, so far, but you know, uh, after Art Center, I met some great people. The program was amazing, life-changing. I freelanced in several industries after that for uh, several years between interactive and commercial direction and brand and things like that. But that was more like to get my legs and to work within the rigor of business. And and I met my partner at a at a design and commercial production company in New York called Brand New School. We weren't practicing anything like Hush, really. We were doing what we knew. He was quite technical. I was quite, I don't know, whatever I am, you know, I could sell. <laughs> and we were a good partnership. And we got to test that on someone else's dime and time. And we were just naive enough to to say, hey, you know, we're at, we're at a certain point in our career and we both had entrepreneurial interests, you know, which, which wasn't the case with a lot of people you meet in that world. Like some people are just super excited to just to not just, but super excited to develop their career and in a studio and, or a firm. I think we always had this passion to be like, we want to create not the stuff only. We want to create the space for other people to create the stuff, which is like the meta layer of design, right? You're like designing the business to do the design is, is cool. So we had that. We just didn't know how to get there, but we knew we couldn't get there within this organization we were in. So, so that kind of led us to to start. We did the typical kind of like moonlight stuff where we we didn't work on other jobs. We just worked on what we would need to do to start the business. The reason we called it Hush is that we did a bunch of competitive exercises where we took maybe a hundred firms and put them in a spreadsheet and copied their their identities, their mission statements, their service offering, their name, their URLs. And um, probably about 40 or 50 in, we were like, oh my God, this is garbage. This is the, uh, <laughs> this is the definition of, of, of blurry words. Everyone's saying the same thing, but it sounds, you know, objectively like the same company. So with that, we were kind of like, who cares? <laughs> like we're never, we're never going to write anything that cuts through the noise. So hush was a sort of onomatopoetic word to just kind of say, let's just do great work and the work will cut through and we don't have to muss it up with all this language. Well, it seems to fit. I mean, it's, you know, you, you hush and you experience you know, these great spaces. So I did. Thank you for the background. I, I love the process Thanks. behind it. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I want to talk about some specific projects and hear from you. And we'll certainly hear from project that you're collaborating on now with Nikolai. But before we get that level, I'd love to kind of learn about your design approach, right? Like what's your process when you're 
a client's like, I want X, Y, and Z. What, what do you do first, second, third? What's, what's sort of that process narrative? So two things, right? You have to have a process so everyone knows the path, but that process can't be so dogmatic that there's no room for improvisation. You, you have to kind of lead with a plan internally and externally, but the idea that it can't be some level of agile and open to the potential that you're wrong or you get new information along the way. And so how to do that within time and constraints and deliverables and milestones and teams and, you know, that kind of stuff is a, a difficult job. But, you know, that's kind of our broad paradigm is have a plan, have a process, but, but allow some room for exploration or doubling back. We're lucky in that sometimes we don't get inquiries that are totally baked yet. A lot of times, especially with referred clients, you get hi, this is what we're doing. This is what we hope we want to do. We just don't even know where to start and we don't know how. And the sooner we can talk to a company like yours, the fewer mistakes we'll make and the better the outcome will be. And that kind of dialogue is where it usually starts. So this isn't rocket science. This is, you know, it's strategy, but we have a particular kind of way we do. It's just pages stolen from all the best tools and practices we've all used across many different experiences, but bringing to life sort of the things we think we know and we have unique insights about. Yeah. Can you share some examples of your favorite recent projects? Absolutely. So we'll talk about the one for Uber with Nikolai a little later, but in the last couple of years, I think, you know, our projects range from, I would say maybe nine months to a few years. We finished a project a, a couple of years ago for a biotech company in Maryland um, really amazing company led by some really amazing visionaries called United Therapeutics. And they built a net zero building. So that means it produces as much energy as it uses uh, over a calendar year. And that's site net zero, which is a small detail, but it's a, it's a mean, it means they don't buy offsets. They, it's wow. actually on the site itself, the physical site, it's all contained, which is really hard to do on the East Coast with seasonal changes and temperature changes and things. Anyway, so they figured out how to engineer that. Why do they do that? They don't trade and make money off of sustainability. They just are an amazing company and it's a cultural value that they have. If they're going to do something in the world, do it. If they're going to put something into the world, put it at the highest quality and caliber for future generations. And so they they sort of align to their values. So they, they're brilliant in what they do as a business, but they also wanted to make sure their architecture and their workplace and their home was part of that, that vision. And so they, the brief they, they came to us with was how do we express this effort and sort of rallying theme around our sustainability efforts? But otherwise it could be pretty invisible, right? And that's, that's become a mantra now in our ongoing sustainability driven experience work. And you said it, which is the, the sheer audacity and difficulty to make things work technically to achieve a sustainable vision, whether it's net zero or not, just any kind, is ultimately the purview of teams in design and architecture and engineering. And then it becomes 100% invisible to everyone else that matters. And so you look at like modern organizations, right? And sustainability is top three things they think about and their people care about, yet it's the first thing to disappear in the built environment. So we figured out that we needed to tell the many different stories, artistically, informationally, 
throughout this building so that anyone that works there is uh, empowered and motivated to help contribute to these mission, this mission. And, um, and anyone who visits realizes that they, they value these things and that's part of their brand and culture. And so it's a storytelling exercise, but it's at the architectural scale of user experience. Yeah. Paint us a picture. What's the experience? So the, the big move we made uh, in the space was in this six story atrium that is this, the core of the building. Every person who works there or enters there somehow occupies this space. You know, it's adjacent to every workspace. You can see it from almost anywhere. And so what we realized was the sustainability idea is connected to the sort of beating heart of the, of the building or the breathing lungs of the building, which might be a more apt metaphor. And that at any moment, the inhabitants of the building and the building are in this symbiotic relationship, right? If we're if there's hundreds of employees in the building who are actively not participating in energy consciousness and saving, the building actually has to work a lot harder to achieve what it's meant to achieve. And if um, they are, it actually does it a lot quicker and and with less expensive energy. So we kind of figured out a way to bring to light this symbiotic relationship in a way that didn't feel big brother. It wasn't like the panopticon. It wasn't about turning on a red light when you misbehave. It was all positive. But we built this 40-foot radial light sculpture that sort of hangs in the center of the atrium. And incredibly simply, it's all connected to the real-time data of the building. So hooked into all the building management systems, all the software, everything. But actually, it's very low tech on the outside. It's stainless steel fins. It almost looks like a sundial not not by the way by accident because sun is the key component to a sustainable building but it's this 40 foot diameter radial sort of sundial um, in which light reflects off these fins and if the light is projected outwards of the circle um, the building is actually producing a net surplus of energy and if the light radiates inward it's actually at a deficit and is working hard to catch up so that simple light play, and of course we we designed these really beautiful animation cycles and things that yeah. you know, at oh, solar cool. noon and you know like super beautiful animation and motion of light. But at the end of the day, it's really a binary. It's a binary symbol, and it just helps you remind yourself out of the side of your vision that you're in a connected relationship. And we talk a lot about like heads up display versus heads down display, right? Like this is a heads up display. This is I'm not looking yeah, at my yeah. phone. You don't have to look at your yeah, phone. Yeah, you're right. just walking through the world, like back to my nature. You're walking through nature, and the sun shines through the forest, and you know what the weather is outside, you know. And the, then the light in the forest gets dark and changes. You know the cloud passes. These kinds of like appreciated heads up information actually is what we are trying to achieve and it's really cool it's, uh, it's one of the things i think we we landed and then of course there's a lot more other things right there's um real-time interactive pieces where you can go back and look historically at energy usage and systems and there's a whole exhibition around what it means to be you know a, a sustainable building and there's a bunch of animation content that we did and distributed through signage and so there's a whole tiered system but that's what we strive to do is like, right, it's appropriate interjections of design 
at the right moment. Imagine if we inverted that, where we put some informational storytelling system at 40 feet in a atrium, people's eyeballs would, it'd be like being in Times Square or at the stock exchange. No one wants that. So that's kind of a good example. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I feel like I'm there. That's so great. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> Listeners, uh, if you'd like to learn more about David's work, visit heyhush.com and check out Hush Plus One, their podcast. It's their new For Makers by Makers podcast. So we'll post a link on our episode page. And David, please stick with us and we'll bring Nikolai Cornell into the conversation after a quick break. Thanks. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Nikolai Cornell. Nikolai is the creative director and senior design manager in brand experience at Uber. Previously, he's been a partner and director of user experience at Push Offices, a founder at White Label and director of interactive media at Obscura Digital. His MFA thesis at Art Center College of Design earned an IF Communications Design Award. He's held lectures on interactive design experiences in California, Portugal, New York, and more. As a multidisciplinary design leader, Nikolai tackles design challenges to make experiences powerful. Nikolai, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, it, it, it feels quite different when someone else sort of reads it out loud like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all in your mind. And then when everyone yeah. says it. Wow, that sounded pretty good. You're well, like, thank I'm you. Pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I want to be humble, but when you, when when you have it, when I listen to you read it out, I'm like, wow, I've accomplished some things in my life, and that always feels good. I think we always, as designers, the work is is sort of never never done. We always know there's something else we could have done to to make it a little bit better. Um, but I think also sometimes we don't we don't take stock of our achievements and its accomplishments yeah, enough agreed. sometimes. Especially designers. We're never satisfied. Never know? satisfied. We just keep yeah. moving. We got to look back. So I'm happy for the podcast to serve that purpose. In fact, let's start with your professional journey because I, I had asked David a little bit about this, but I'm curious, when did you discover interactive design and know like, this is what I want to do? Sure, sure. Um, that is a good question. And you know, when I think about my journey, it's definitely been a winding one. Let me let me dive in. So the journey for me begins back in architecture school. So I have an undergraduate degree in architecture uh, from Virginia Tech. And I think back fondly to the many sort of sleepless nights working <laughs> in the quote unquote lab um, with my other um, designers trying to figure out like what architecture was all about. My doormates would always sort of almost make fun and be like, oh, Nikolai is going to the lab again tonight. Like, what do you guys even do there? Like, when is your work done? And we're like, well, it's work, but we're like exploring things. We're exploring space and materials and 
um, experiences and physicalities and all this stuff. And it takes time. And it was sort of a mix of play and learning and exploration. And then of course, rigor, because we had to learn about sort of the different elements of making sure a building would stand <laughs> up, statics and, and, and these different things. But that was sort of where my journey started. And while I was there, um, I think what was unique too, was that we were kind of beginning to go through a shift of doing most of what we did by hand with these really sort of thin rapidograph um, pens that had different weights so we could articulate different elements of our drawings um, to a shift to using a computer. And it was a slow, slow endeavor at the time, um, but nevertheless, it, it, it was happening. And so I would cobble together some of these programs that I was learning. We didn't, we didn't have any kind of AutoCAD quite yet, but I would do things in Illustrator and in Photoshop and then I would take photographs and still build models and then photograph those, bring those in, overlay textures. It was almost like a, a collage type um, process. But I think that introduction to, to design or graphic design and learning some of those foundational skills um, helped me out later in my career. Hmm. Yeah. How did you make the leap then from architecture into interactive? So after graduating, I moved out to San Francisco. I knew I wanted to go to a city, but, but New York felt a slight bit scary to me. And so I was like, you know, San Francisco feels good. It's a big enough city, but not a huge one prospects of getting a job are not great in any city, but they seem decent here in San Francisco. So moved out there, sent out my portfolio, ended up getting some callbacks um, and got a job at Face Architecture, which was a small architecture firm, about five people um, doing mostly uh, residential and some interior commercial projects. And I enjoyed my time there, but I became a bit disillusioned with the industry due to the incredibly low pay, but also sort of the, the, the time from concept to execution. Mm, um, I mm -hmm. had worked almost a year on this interior commercial redesign for an ad agency, um, got a chance to do you know some, some, some actual design, but also begin even some project management and some onsite work. And then the, la the landlord sued the tenant and the tenant sued the landlord. And the project just went away. And yeah. I was like, wow, I, work, I spent over a year of my life on this. And I literally have nothing other than a couple models and drawings to show for it. it. It was a bit tough. And I was also, you know, I was in San Francisco. It was, dot, it was 1999. It was dot com 1.0 was all the rage. I had been become a lot more interested in the Internet and the different sort of tools that were used to develop websites. And um, I leveraged some of the graphic design skills that, that I had learned in undergraduate and then ended up getting a job at Razorfish as a production artist initially. And so Razorfish was one of the, at the time, sort of innovative design consultancies that was shaping the way that companies sort of represented themselves on the web. And my expertise was developing online experiences in Flash. And I just remember how just empowering that felt to be able to craft these experiences, use tools to craft these experiences and figure out like how people might use them. And they're happening. It's like you design it and then people are using it a lot quicker, right? That turnaround time. <laughs> a lot quicker. And I'll have to say what inspired me was also a little bit the sense of, there was a small community of designers that were creating experiments in Flash and then posting them online as open source. One of the most well-known is probably Joshua Davis, who created PreyStation. He would post his, his explorations in the code for them online and make them open to anybody to download. And I would spend countless nights 
downloading the code, picking through it, learning how it worked, and then utilizing um, code snippets from it to craft my own experiences. I ended up creating my own photography portfolio website that, that won some industry awards. And that process was just magical for me at the time. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, as through the intro, we're talking about the different interesting organizations you've worked with. What have you learned about design over these years, you know, through architecture and interactivity wow. um, in your role now? What's a, a lesson you've learned? Well, I think, you know, when you, when you start as a younger designer, you're really keying in on the work. You're trying to understand the goal of the project, who the audience is, and what type of experience makes the most sense to craft. You're doing some audience research. Hopefully, you're using a human-centered design approach. You're prototyping, you're iterating, seeing how it works, and, and then building on it. But as you sort of work your way up to take on more leadership roles, you realize there's a lot more to it than just getting the work done. <laughs> um, you need the right team. You need the right processes and methodologies in place. And you also have to learn how to present the work to a myriad of different stakeholders. And all these stakeholders, they have different motivations. And I think David has experienced this a countless amount of times for his projects, whether he's pitching or whether he's presenting you know, certain rounds of design to, to his clients. You, you have to learn to sort of understand who your stakeholders are and what their motivations are and then craft your your presentations accordingly so i think that's one important learning yeah that's cool yeah and that's a great another place to use design right to design those experiences yes and and a lot of times those experiences might not you might not be focusing necessarily on the visual but very much sort of on the verbal and, yeah. and the storytelling that you need to you need to sort of start with to get a concept to come across. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's talk about your role at Uber now. Uh, what are you focused on these days? Yes, all right. So I think you know what's been interesting is my role at Uber has has evolved as the company has evolved. You know, I've never never worked at a place that has um, grown. You know, I've only worked at a handful of places my entire life, but I can tell you the pace at which Uber grew during my time. I think it was one of the fastest growing companies ever yeah. in existence. And so there was a new thing, a new challenge to overcome um, each week. I think going into it, I had the right mindset. And that mindset was that there's going to be a lot of ambiguity and you have to be comfortable with change. And I think that that served me well during my time. And so, again, you know, I started off very much focusing the first year was sort of rigor and attention to detail. I like to say it was about particular projects that had a particular need um, on the brand and experience side. From there, my second year and third year was about team building, prioritization, intake, creating different ways that we could just address the type of work that was coming in and, and sort of planning for how we work on the project. So prioritization, resourcing, and sort of how we could structure what we worked on in order for it to have the most impact. And then sort of the next couple of years are about future vision and scale. And then the past couple of years have been about sort of design leadership. And so I've gone through nice. wow. just, yeah, a variety of- That's had to the wear, full, full path right there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different hats. And, um, you know, it, it's been amazing because I've had a chance to work on an incredibly diverse, set of projects. And I think that's been 
what's been just amazing. And to give you a sense of, of what some of those are, I got a chance to help redefine the in the in-person driver support experience. Mm. So our drivers get the majority of their support online, which is what we which is the ideal because we can do it very efficiently, better for them, better for us. But some challenges that they have have to be resolved in person. And so um, we created these in-person support centers that catered to their needs. And over time, the needs, their needs evolved and the needs of these, these centers evolved. And so we had to sort of rethink what that experience could be like. So instead of, you know, just trying to get them in and out as quickly as possible, how could we offer the space to them to be almost like, almost like an oasis mm, where they could come get their needs met, but also could perhaps refresh and recharge um, before they hit up, hit the road? Or mm. is it a place where they could learn new things that would empower them and make their jobs, you know, or make their work better or, or, or easier? And so we sort of rethought what that experience could be like with a little bit of more of a shift towards hospitality. Yeah, that's cool. Also had a chance to design the physical and digital product design for an in-car in communication device. Uh, it's called the Uber Beacon. It's basically sits on the dashboard for drivers and Sort of the, the main initial concept was that it would illuminate in a particular color that you would select from your phone so that in high traffic environments or at night or in the rain, you could more easily identify your particular Uber. Um, from there, though, we evolved it to um, provide more affordances for the driver and the rider. Um, it became an in-person or yeah, in-car communication device. So when you got in, it would welcome you into the car. It would also, from a safety standpoint, sort of provide you with the name of the rider and the driver so that each could make sure they were picking up the right person or getting into right. the right car. Um, and then on trip, it provided information to both the rider and the driver that was contextual and useful to them. So for instance, if you're heading to the airport, it might tell you what gate uh, or, or what terminal you're being dropped off on. So it's just a reminder to the rider and driver that, that yes, indeed, you're heading uh, to the right direction. And then when the car stopped, it would remind you which side uh, of the car to get out on. So that was that was fascinating project cool. because it involved both sort of the physical mm -hmm. aspects of industrial design of this object, but then also all of the experience design elements of, of, of the digital um, experience. Yeah, let's get into this project that you all are collaborating on. So we talked about you both went to Art Center. Uh, now you're both working on the Uber's Mission Bay HQ. So Nikolai, maybe you could tell us more about the project and sort of how it kicked off and what the objective is. Okay. All right. Let's see how deep we want to go. So this project <laughs> initially started, well, the one that David and I are working on and our teams, collective teams are working on, we've been doing it for a couple of years. But even a couple of years before then, the previous founder and CEO of Uber, um, Travis Kalanick, he and um, the executive team thought it was important as we were growing as a company to create a new headquarters in San Francisco in order to accommodate um, the tremendous growth that we saw coming in employees. And so we bought some, some land and then partnered with Shop Architects to design this new campus. As part of that campus design, my team got to collaborate on the design of the environmental branding, the wayfinding, the graphics. We did that in collaboration with Caitlin Cunningham and Tracy Kelly on the workplace team. That team is dedicated towards 
just sort of overseeing the design and the build out of all of the physical spaces that Uber occupies. And so we had a great collaboration with them. And, you know, we knew we needed something, just something special for, for our lobby, something that could express um, the company's vision, who we are, um, the impact that we're having in the world. And so we brought David um, and Hush into the project and we sort of kicked things off with saying, here's our initial sort of um, idea for us wanting something in the lobby. We don't quite know what we want. We know we have stories to tell. We want something magical, artistic. We want it to be like beautiful and we want people to be amazed by it. But we don't know how, we don't quite know. We gotta, we gotta do a workshop. We gotta like yeah, figure yeah, this yeah. out with you. And so mm. David was like, yeah, I would love to do that. David, when you're taking all that in, we talked a little about storytelling. Does a story start to materialize in your mind through that process? And if so, can you? Sh what, what's that story that is starting to come together? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's as uh, beautiful mind as you're painting it. <laughs> you're at the window yeah, and you're, you're sketching in chalk, the glass. Yeah, and in glass, <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it's, it's not like that. I mean, I think visually, you know, a lot and i have to stop myself from verbalizing the things i'm thinking about when we're learning we're still in learning <laughs> stage you know and i think right. that's part of it is holding back to just kind of added ingredients into the mix and see what's interesting is i mean i, I beat this drum internally and I, I beat it externally which is and i said it before it's hard to do simple um it's really hard to do simple i think the forces of the industry the forces of clients of stakeholders of lots of everyone wanting everything to be everything and do everything and and check a bunch of boxes means that simple is just oh it's you have to defend simple and uh and it's almost as if even an incredibly simple idea people wonder is is that enough you know is can we do that and feel like, so that's kind of how i go into all these things but you know with with Nikolai, we had a, a shared language and he brought amazing stakeholders from Uber to the table, you know, across departments who thought about Uber and its message through through data and through technology, who thought of it through workplace and materiality, who thought about it through the storytelling they're doing around the brand and its positioning in the world and and business strategy. And, you know, you, you're it's almost like being a, a, a psychiatrist. You're just listening and you're kind of taking notes and you're seeing what people are passionate about and you're sort of making this massive Venn diagram in your head about, hey, who's saying the same thing? Who's saying different things? And where do they all align? And I think what we ultimately did over many weeks was kind of like find that space where everyone's interests can be held, but it was still a simple idea. And those are always the best. And so, and then you have this like generalized idea, but you have to force it through the constraints of you know the scale of a building the people that are there the the financial investment the future state right these are permanent things so it has to live on much like product thinking so that's kind of that's kind of where we go you know and, and i think the 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 one thing that well we did it several things <laughs> that helped shape <laughs> shape the direction that, that that we took we had a really fruitful workshop where everyone sort of brought their thoughts to the table um, it allowed us to have a dialogue that sort of made pushing the work forward more efficient for us. But we very quickly honed in um, on the audience, right? Because we're like, 
who are we really designing this experience for? And we honed in on three audience types, which were employees, uh, leadership, and recruits. We had other audience types, including drivers, press, visitors, but really for us, employees, leadership, and recruits were, were the important ones. And so for employees, it was like, could we provide some daily inspiration where this thing was evolving and it was showing something different? We're, we're doing so many different things to the company. Let's show some of those things that not everyone might be aware of, right? And so could we could it also be a reminder of our purpose and, and, and the company's vision? It could be a, a conversation starter for, for those that are experienced. And then for leadership, it, it needed to clearly express the company's vision. It could be something that they could show to visitors, maybe a place for them to meet with the press. Again, this is all thinking pre-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then for recruits that were coming in during the time, it would give them a chance to, to protect, perhaps see the impact that their work that they might do at Uber might have out, out um, in the world. And so that was one important thing that we did. And also there were going to be physical constraints within the space, right? Within the architecture. So making sure that we understood um, what the affordances of the space, what we could leverage, what we couldn't, and how could we create an experience that like elegantly integrated into the architecture. We didn't want it to sort of feel like it was a a, an LCD screen, yeah. or plasma nailed that, was, to the wall. that was just nailed to the wall. It needed to be thoughtful in how, um, in the form factor that it took on as sort of a response to the architecture. And the architect's shop would also much more appreciate if the experience <laughs> did that, yeah, right? Yeah. Versus it feeling like a postage stamp or something that was, that was uh, added um, afterwards. Yeah, that actually leads to my next question about how are you integrating technology? You're designing and, and you're weaving technology solutions into that work. How is that? Do they, are they in lockstep like that? How, how are you working that way? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. But I think what Nikolai said or is, is sort of not saying maybe is that the brief was not well, there was no brief, but the brief was not <laughs> there was no a little brief. No, a little brief. We kind of made the brief together, but the, what the brief we made together wasn't explicit about technology. Mm -hmm. It was explicit about impact. And it said all the things Nikolai just said didn't have an asterisk that said must use technology. So in theory, there was a solution that maybe could do what we wanted to do without technology at all. I, I don't think that would be maybe right for Uber as a brand or or maybe for what we do as a company so much. But I just want to make clear, like it it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion. And so I think that's where it starts, right? If you if technology is a foregone conclusion, that's where screens on walls happen and 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 ad nauseum. So I think uh, one thing we also didn't say, Nikolai, is you know what at that point the the company was wrestling a little bit with its own identity and yes. it was changing yes. and a CEO change and a, 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 what, what do we need to be to the world? Like, what are we offering? And also like doing amazing things, but maybe not having that be articulated extremely well externally. So lots of work was happening. That was really amazing to sort of surface that. And what they landed on was this idea of igniting opportunity through movement and motion. And, and it, you know, the, the phrasing of it and the nomenclature changed a little bit over time, but the bottom line is, it was that this idea of motion and motion is almost, it's kinetic and the kinetics of all of Uber's systems and partnerships and, uh, and, and technologies are enabling people to do things that they couldn't do before. Some people start 
start small businesses and make money. Some people are able to have moonlight jobs. Some people are able to reach an economic level that maybe they never could before. So it's like a, it's an opportunity creation mechanism, but we really latched onto this like movement idea simply. And how could a static space, which is fundamentally a, a an architectural space is, is built and it doesn't move? How do we inject the feeling of movement into it uh, in a way that feels graceful and on brand? And then also tell a bunch of stories that people can take with them and say, you know what, we're, we're doing some great things. So cool. I love it. Thank you both. Uh, this has been such a cool conversation. And Nikolai, thank you for joining us and sharing your story and what you're working on. It's a real pleasure. This is great. We're ending it already, huh? Wow. <laughs> I know. That, that flew by. Listeners, you can always visit uber.com and check that out and, you know, peer in the windows at some point uh, and see Nikolai, David, and the whole team's work. And now it's that time, my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. I will share first. I've been talking to my team the last month about PlayStation 5. I finally got one. I'm so excited. Shout out to my good friend, Steve Bernard, who magically found one and asked me if I wanted it. And I Venmoed him and now I have a PlayStation 5. Um, these things are so hard to get. So thank you, Steve. I will say the design of the PS5 is really unique. First actual console, it's quite large compared to like my little Nintendo Switch, but you know, the console just sits there. Uh, so I thought it was really smart for Sony to make it kind of this sculptural piece. And it's almost, it could be like a vase in your home. It's, it's really this beautiful white flowing form. Uh, it just sits there. The controller is what, right, what you use every day. And it's got these cool interactive LEDs and beautiful textures as a touchpad, which makes for some interesting opportunities. My favorite part of the controller is it has a speaker in it. So I'm playing this game. Uh, it's called Days Gone. It's about the zombie apocalypse. That's a whole other conversation. But you have a walkie-talkie. And the audio from the walkie-talkie actually comes out of the controller, not out of the TV. So it's this really interesting, like immersive experience. I also bought the wireless uh, Pulse 3D audio headphones. So I'm getting this like 3D audio from my headphones of getting the, the controllers saying stuff. Um, it's a lot of fun and it's been nice to have during the pandemic. So Sony, you crushed it. Uh, also Sony Bend created this Days Gone game, which is really awesome. So I'm very happy to have my PlayStation 5 and kudos to Sony for knocking it out of the park on their next generation console. All right, David, you're up. So my piece of design to contribute to your audience is, is not design really, although I guess it's, it's an artist. Uh, maybe some of you know him, his name's David Shrigley. The reason why I chose him, uh, design is so much about being enduring as a quality uh, to it, I would say, but also being very, uh, relatable in the moment. And I swear to God, this guy's artwork and his Instagram feed got me through 2020. Um, the, the wit and the, how prolific he is and the, just the, uh, just, he works with just enough form and just enough words that he's, it's, everything's this enigma of an idea that's humorous, but somehow fits into your, moment experience in the day. And, and, and it's, it's this 
like a friend you get every day to help make sense of the insanity of the world. Um, and I think, I don't know if that's the goal of design, but good design sort of shows up in the right way at the right moment. And I, if you follow his work, it's just, you can apply it to almost any conversation moment, big or small that you have in a day. And it, it just makes you feel good and positive. So oh, we will definitely know. have to post a link to at least the Instagram. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that sounds that's funny. That sounds awesome. And thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. Kudos on all the awesome work and I'll keep following you all and seeing the cool stuff you do. Thanks, Sam. Okay, that's our show. I want to thank again, David Schwarz and Nikolai Cornell for joining us. And thank you all for being here and listening to that great conversation. We'll post links to Hush, Uber, and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. I also want to thank everyone again who contributed to Design Museum Everywhere's latest Kickstarter campaign for our special magazine issue, The Policing Issue, how one of the most powerful institutions functions by design. The issue features 16 designers, researchers, writers, and artists of color. It explores the relationship between design and policing, from physical objects used by officers to how the design process can perpetuate unjust practices, to you know, how do you design a protest? Uh, the magazine is ready to purchase on its own, so you could check that out on our website, or you could subscribe to Design Museum Magazine and get the magazine every season, or become a member, get the magazine, come to our events. We'd love to have you in the Design Museum family. So check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on magazine. You can always find the latest from us on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. You can find us on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And we have an awesome email newsletter that goes out every week. Uh, and you can learn everything that we're working on, upcoming events, cool articles. You can sign up for that on our website as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and editing support by Julia Christian. Thank you all. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here and we'll talk next week.